Hi, this is Jeff Steele. Today we're going to be reading Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went into the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, To an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Now, Athens, where Paul is in chapter 17, appears to be a different kind of a town than the ones we've been reading about to this point in Acts. In most of the world, when Paul travels and preaches the gospel, he meets serious Jewish opposition. But here in Athens, he does go to the synagogue and reason with the Jewish people living there. But that's not the key confrontation that we read about. Understand, Athens is a major center of life in the Roman world. It's a port city. It was a center of commerce, arts, and education. Now, to understand a little bit of what Athens was about, we should recognize some of the powerful forces that shaped it as a community. Now, even if, okay, let's talk philosophy for a second. Even if you have never studied philosophy a day in your life, could you possibly name one major philosopher in the ancient world? If you can, chances are you named either Socrates, 
Plato or Aristotle. All three of these teachers were from Athens. Socrates was the teacher of Plato who established his school in Athens. And then Plato's most famous student would be Aristotle who eventually founded his own school in Athens as well. Now, my point is, it would be really hard to overstate the impact that Athens has had on Western civilization, philosophy, and education. So when Paul travels to Athens and starts hanging out in the public square, now he's hardly uh, rubbing shoulders with just some random people who don't know anything. It specifically says he debated with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers there. Now, Epicureans and Stoics, these would have been students of two other forms of philosophy, which had their own schools and they were based in, you guessed it, Athens. As a matter of fact, Stoicism was founded by a philosopher named Zeno, which is an awesome name. Uh, Zeno set up his school on this great porch, which in Greek, the word for porch is stoa. That's why they're called Stoics, because they met on this porch, which was located on the north side of the public square. This was a philosophy that was taught out in the open in the public square, not behind some walled, uh, you know, academic uh, institution somewhere. This wasn't just a public space where people saw each other in passing. This was a place to spend time and exchange ideas in Athens. The public square was the center of civic life. So Paul goes to where the people are. I just, I wonder how many of our church expressions today are designed with the expectation that the public should come into our closely guarded and monitored Christian buildings versus we, the church, being a part of the life and heart of the city in the public square. Now, from the public square, Paul gets invited to address the high council. This is at a place called the Areopagus, or sometimes it's called by its Roman name, which is Mars Hill. This would have been a highly academic crowd And while they could be called religious people because of their many idols and altars and temples, it was a very cultural form of religion and worship. The Greek cities were devoted to particular deities or characters from mythology. And you would see structures built and named after these gods throughout the ancient world. And a city with such cultural prominence such as Athens was actually home to many of them. When Paul first arrived in Athens, the text says he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw. And he even came upon an altar to an unknown God. They were so concerned about covering all their bases, they thought, man, what if there's a God we've missed? We'd better build an altar to that one too. I mean, I guess they get points for being open-minded. But Paul gets an invitation to address this crowd, and the sermon that he delivers is significantly different than any other sermon in the book of Acts. Remember, All the way back in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen preached, it was at a time when the Jewish people were about to kill him. So Stephen appealed to their common history together, which was the Old Testament. He started all the way back at the beginning with Abraham and Moses, telling about all the prophets that led all the way up to Christ. Now, if Paul had begun here in Athens with Abraham and Moses, his audience probably would not have understood what he was talking about. They didn't care about Abraham or Moses, so appealing to their uh, authority would not have helped Paul very much. So for the first time, we read a sermon that doesn't contain a single reference to the Old Testament. 
So where is the common history to which Paul is going to refer? If you have a Bible handy, you might want to open it to Acts 17 to see exactly how this, how this works out, because I think it's fascinating. He starts in verse 2, and he starts off by saying, listen, guys, you are really religious. He says, men of Athens, I notice you're very religious in every way. In, in many ways, I think that the culture that we're, the picture that we're getting of the culture in Athens could be considered uh, a real parallel to our culture in America. We, too, live in a nation of privileged economic and political significance. In many ways, our culture could be considered not necessarily religious or even anti-religious, but in many ways, we see that just like Paul, we could actually identify the world around us as extremely religious. By that, I mean that everywhere you go, people are looking for significance. We, too, have idols all around us. We construct monuments to our own egos. We worship sports and entertainment personalities. And we build temples dedicated to them, actually. We sacrifice at the altars of personal comfort and style. We lay down our offerings on the altar or the cash register, as the case may be, to purchase the right symbols and fashions for ourselves that will unlock our true potential. Let no one say that America is not a religious culture. We worship and build temples of worship in the form of shopping malls and sports and entertainment venues. We are religious indeed. Now Paul goes further to insist that the whole world traces its common history back to God, the one who created the world. And since this is the God who created the world, he doesn't really even need temples or things built with our hands. But instead, he's interacted with history and nations and rulers in such a way that he has shown that he wants mankind to turn to him. Paul notes that God is much closer than you even think he is. Because of all of that, Paul implores his audience to turn away from these worthless things to the one true God who calls them. And as proof of all of this, Paul offers the resurrection of Christ. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, we can be confident that this God whom Paul preaches is the real deal. This is how we know that the hope that we have is not just empty hope, like an empty altar or stone temple or statue, but a real, live, living, and breathing hope in a real God who has been there and has been calling to us from the very beginning. The point is that the other idols around us can't offer that same hope. You can search. You can search for all the wisdom of the world. A place such as Athens claims to be the place where true wisdom was found. The wisdom of the ages, the wisdom of grand philosophers. But at the end of the day, all Paul found were a bunch of religious people who didn't even know what they were worshiping. Our world is a lot like that. We have all the stuff. We have all the power, the money, the wisdom that we could possibly hope for. We go looking for it in the world, in our philosophies, in our vocations, in our recreation. But if we're not careful, we can end up the same way. A bunch of people living their lives and maybe talking about the latest ideas, but not really knowing what they are worshiping. So what about you? Where is your hope? What do you worship? Let's pray together. 
God, I pray that our worship is directed towards you, not towards empty and vain things, not towards the things that promise so much fulfillment but to deliver so little, but the things that last, the things that you set before us, the things that you prepared for us in advance. Uh, God, we look past the idols, we look past the, uh, the surface um, wisdom of the world and look towards you, the, the giver of all uh, truth and all wisdom. God, may that be our focus and our goal today in your name. Amen. Have a great day.